Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. In light of COVID-19, our regularly scheduled 9 and 11 a.m. Sunday services are currently suspended. During this time, we will live stream our 11 a.m. Sunday morning service and plan to offer other online connection points throughout the week. You can find us on Facebook or visit www.rockpoint.org for more information, including important schedule updates. Before we get into the message today, uh, we had such a significant response to Forrest Gump uh, last week that I thought I would invite uh, um, his avatar on here with us today. Um, This is uh, Jeff Brown, our family life pastor. Uh, Jeff, just a snapshot of some of your background real quickly, starting with the military and all. Sure. Um, I uh, left high school, started college, and then joined the military, became a, a medic. And uh, loved taking care of people. And uh, after I got out of the military, went back to nursing school. And uh, from then on was an ER nurse. And uh, I maintained working in the ER for know, about 15, 16, 17 years or so until uh, till God called me here. Okay. You've been here with us how long has it been now? On staff. I mean, we've oh, been yeah. with the church probably. Like, been with the church 20 years. 20 years. On staff, nine years? Nine years or so. Mm-hmm. And tell us a little bit what you've been providing for the children and everything else like that. That's one, one item that you've been doing during this whole shutdown time. Yeah, this, is, this has been really strange, actually. It's uh, when you don't have all of your tools to be able to use to, right. to minister, you've got to change it up a little bit. And so we've done our best to do. We've done uh, weekly online children's ministry on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock. We've done family devotionals. We've done 30 days of prayer, which is great to see all our families and get a sense of community a little bit. Uh, we've done some devotionals throughout the week on our Facebook page. It's, uh, um, they can take some of our tools away, but they, they can't take away church. It's been actually kind of cool because some of you have sent in pictures of your kids engaging uh, in, in the ministry that Jeff and the team have put together. Um, Jeff has also been on location here with me. We've, let, let me kind of clarify, we never closed as a church. Now, we are not convening. We're not gathering in our normal fashion. Um, but we continue to have someone on our phones from 9 until 3, Monday through Thursday. Uh, generally speaking, Jeff or I, or, or both of us usually are in the office along with Janet, our receptionist. Um, and then different staff members are rotating in at different times to take care of different items. Um, there's a number of things that we've actually been doing, uh, and one of those has been we've, we've facilitated, you have as a congregation, have facilitated now thousands of masks that we have had deployed through Detroit Police Department in Detroit. Um, the other week, they, we helped to facilitate over 10,000 gloves, pairs of gloves, rather, um, that again went through Detroit uh, Police Department. Um, we have involved ourselves in large numbers of containers of sanitizing uh, liquid. Um, we sent two of those, particularly set up two stations in two grocery stores in the Osborne community that couldn't open because they couldn't provide it safely. And so uh, we were able to provide sanitizing material for there as well as also for uh, um, other areas of Detroit with the police department. Food, we've had probably several hundred families, I think, at this point in time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and Jeff's been facilitating that. We're also trying to be helpful to two, two different groups of people in our church, particularly beyond, uh, yeah, what, what two groups? We really wanted to encourage those that, that are, are stressed out during this time. So we, we've kind of targeted our, our medical community and our banking community, which nobody ever thinks that you're bankers. Right. But during this time, they have been just hours upon hours above their, their normal time and stressed out beyond belief. So we've been able to bless them and encourage them. And 
And if you are one of our bankers and you didn't get something here and we may not be aware that that's your profession for some reason, feel free to contact us through Facebook or directly to Jeff. Same thing if you're one of our medical personnel. I think we managed to get most everyone, but if we haven't, uh, we're kind of trying to keep track of that. There's been a whole stack of other things happened. One thing that has been asked about, and I, I appreciate the ask, um, this Sunday is the 19th right now, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this was supposed to be my last Sunday for about four months of time or so. Uh, many of you know that I was being granted a sabbatical by the elders, so I was actually going to be gone as of this Tuesday um, for about a four-month period of time of study and uh, renewal. And I realized very quickly uh, the very first week that we were not able to gather as a church, that that's something that I just did not want to, uh, I don't want to be away when things like this are happening. So that was set aside. But I appreciate so many of you that asked about that and so many of you that even supported that. Um, hopefully there'll be a time for that in some future space. But right now, uh, all of us, the staff, everyone's been regularly engaged and a part of things, our trustees, our elders, various other members uh, in volunteering and helping out. We've been in contact with our partners in Costa Rica, Steve Gill down in Florida, um, others around this area here that we've been engaged in and been uh, connecting with. Um, uh, trying to think of anything else offhand that comes to your mind, Jeff, that we should just let people know and be tuning them into? Yeah, I think it's just, it, it's so encouraging to, to see our, our church community become the, the community. I was, I was mentioning to you uh, a little bit earlier that when chaos and, and craziness ensues, it kind of separates people into two different camps, the selfishness camp right. and the selflessness camp. And to see the church become that selflessness camp, is, uh, it, it, it's been inspiring. Um, it's been great to see folks just see a need and then just deliver it without thought, without question. Um, it, it, I don't know. It, it is, uh, it's great to see the church be the church. The other thing you said too early on was about looking for helpers. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it, it's actually uh, Angie uh, Guru brought this up to me, and we were discussing something a few weeks ago, and she brought up a quote from uh, uh, Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers. And um, it was something his mother always told him, is that when all kind of stuff like this is going on, is to always look for the helpers. And this, for me, this is an opportunity where everything is going crazy for the church to be the helpers. And I thought it was interesting. He wasn't saying look for the helpers because they're people that can help you. He was saying look for the helpers because they give you hope. And isn't that living out Matthew 28 and showing people who Jesus is so that we can show people the hope in Christ? That is the part that's excited me through this. I, I know some people have been, you know, fighting boredom and, and all those different things. Uh, I can't say we've been fighting a lot of boredom. But it doesn't mean that it hasn't been exciting to watch the church come alive in a unique way. Yeah, boredom has definitely not been an issue for us. Uh, <laughs> no. I actually realized uh, uh, last week, I think it was, uh, I was in, talking with, with my wife in the household a bit and saying, okay, I'm going to take a day off this week because I realized I hadn't had a day off or had not stopped with a phone or something functioning for three weeks. Then I got into the office on Monday and realized that it had actually been five weeks that we had not taken that kind of a break. So we're trying to balance that out a bit. But you as a church, if I can just say this, you guys have really truly been phenomenal in this process, both in, in giving in so many different ways. Um, I'll take a small nod out to the 9 a.m. service. We, you guys have just tied in with us at 11 a.m., I haven't had one nasty email or questioning as to why we shifted to 11. And no, I, we're not trying to do two services. You guys have joined us and uh, we're part of one whole family. We had uh, probably somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 people that were joining us for Easter. Um, not all of you, I'm sure, um, are, are ones who fellowshiped here with us in person. 
and we welcome you and hope that you're still uh, tying in with us here a bit today. There's something we were talking about earlier as we as we close this portion down and we get get into the message. I was talking with uh, Jeff earlier because with his military background, um, there is a, a, a type of strategy called the Fabian strategy, and it goes back to Roman times when Hannibal had crossed over the Alps and was invading Rome, and uh, the Romans had two devastating losses from the uh, um, from Hannibal, and so uh, a guy named Fabius became in charge, Quintus Fabius. And he had a strategy that was different. He said that they were basically going to shelter in place, that they were basically going to stay inside the walls of the city. Um, the structure of Hannibal's army was made of mercenaries and other ones that, that thrived on victory and thrived on, on plunder. And they couldn't get through the walls. And so his idea was we stay in place until they are worn down, see defections. We don't give them any victories to crow about. And then we come out well-fed and, and strong and we devastate them. And it actually was very effective um, the army was starting to splinter under uh, Hannibal, um, but it was a real wearing thing for the people to not see any victories, and quickly they forgot the two devastating losses that they'd had in combat, and so they got a little tired of it. It's not a politically expedient issue to do. And so they actually replaced Quintus Fabius with a guy named Guy Asfara. And uh, this guy decided that um, he would instead actually engage in direct conflict and so um, Varus actually ended up taking his guys out. They engaged Hannibal directly. And this, the Battle of Cannae, and forgive me the history thing for a minute here, but, but the Battle of Cannae is the classic um, strategy in warfare. Uh, I think there were something like 60,000 Romans were killed as, as Hannibal retreated in the front, swung around the sides and the flanks, and completely encompassed them. And as a result, Rome woke up again and realized this was not a good idea, and they went back to the Fabian strategy of waiting it out, and eventually it did work. And Hannibal's army splittered, they had to leave, and Rome won the battle. And as I was talking about this, you pulled out of the hat, which I was really pleased with because it, there, it's, it's linked directly. Many different military people have used the strategy, and you said what on that? I said it sounds just like George Washington Revolutionary War. It was exactly the same thing. George Washington tried to engage, then realized that that was a problem, so they pulled back and would just shadow and engage in little skirmishes, and eventually it wore the British down. And in a way, it's the same thing of what we're dealing with right now, guys. It's a, a sheltering in place. It's waiting out the enemy. It's, it's being patient. It's not the most satisfying thing. It's frustrating. And we're going to talk about that frustration here this morning. Um, but it is an effective strategy. Uh, so hang in there with that. Jeff, thank you for joining. We just wanted to, to have at least, we had a goodbye from, uh, from uh, um, Forrest Gump, so we want to at least have a, a hello from him. So thank you for joining well, me on this. That's all I have to say about that, Randy. <laughs> I appreciate it, Jeff. <laughs> we have a really great team. Uh, we've all been together for quite some time now. And uh, uh, I can't tell you how much it means to have these men and women being part of what we're doing. I don't want to be long with you today, but, uh, but I do want to be somewhat detailed. And um, this is entitled The Monsters on Maple Street. And the, the events take place initially in an all-American community, uh, Maple Street, it's about 6.43 at night, and there's this loud noise and a flash across the sky, and the residents begin to speculate on the nature of what this was. Was it a meteor? Uh, was it something else? What was it that had flashed across their sky? And, and, and this quiet, restful, warm community is about to be transformed, and the narrator comes in and says, Maple Street, 6.44 p.m. on a late September evening. Maple Street, in the last calm and reflective moments, 
before the monsters came. Before the monsters came. We're all in the situation that we're dealing with. Millions of us are struggling to cope in this shelter-in-place time. And uh, a lot of people are talking online. It's become the conversation of a lot of social media. Some people are joking about it. One person said, thank God my wife has multiple personalities. I'm quarantined with a different person every day, and it's not boring at all, uh, said this one guy, Paul Barber. And there's a brief video I want to show you right now, because even America's celebrity sweethearts evidently want to throttle each other. Kristen Bell and Dax Shepard have been married since 2013. They're parents of two young daughters, and they openly admitted some of what they're dealing with in uh, this conversation with Katie Couric. Check it out. Are you all getting along, though, pretty well? We're getting along good with the kids and we're getting along good with the adults we're friends with. We, this has been stressful for mom and for dad. For mom and dad, we've been at each other's throats real bad. <laughs> really? Real bad over the last couple. Oh, yeah. yeah. It just ended like eight minutes ago. This is perfect time. This is as physically close as we've been in a couple days because <laughs> we've just found each other revolting. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, my husband just America's got... sweetheart is America's sweetheart has some character defects. <laughs> that... <laughs> what is he doing? Just making noises to poke me. <laughs> you two, maybe you need a little time apart in the same house. Like you have your little space and he has your his little space. It's impossible. He's too big, Katie. He's too loud and too big. <laughs> He's everywhere. I think what you guys are going through is being repeated in families all over the country. And I'm sure it's being repeated in your household as well. Um, a couple of your comments, I just find him revolting and he's too big, he's too loud. You just clearly see that Kristen Bell is really struggling uh, during this season. Um, a lot of people are. Uh, this climate has changed how we engage one another. Uh, one person um, thinks that maybe a family should visit from outside of town. The other one's saying, no, that's a violation of the, of the guidelines that are being done there. Um, some people are having conflicts and they, don't, they think it's because that I sent him to the store to get seven cans of corn and he only got three cans of corn. And they're not realizing that they're not really arguing about corn, they're more arguing about um, or out of a, a need to feel stable and secure. Uh, one um, writer says it's just so much more pronounced now because the climate for everybody is such an acute, pervasive level of anxiety that kicks up the sympathetic nervous system. The fight or flight um, fear responses are very much always on. That's where you get problematic cycles of interactions which are so difficult to in interrupt if you are in a heightened state. And one writer who has been known for her parenting background said, quote, a week ago or two ago, I just attacked my husband. I had what I now understand after a lot of reporting and writing about it was a natural human reaction to so much uncertainty and terror. They go on and said, I'm trying to cope with demands. He's not coping the way I want him to cope. And I handle it in the worst way, very accusatory. And she said there's a lot of other people she's finding fighting with their partner, the kids, or conflict with relatives. Um, one recommendation is that if you're in this kind of a conflict is to take a time out. Um, literally blow a whistle, step back, and the usual recommended time is about a half hour where you just step to separate corners and uh, take a moment of quietness 
It takes that long, about 30 minutes, for the human brain to kind of reset and reshape. Now, going on, the Disaster Distress Helpline. This is a federal crisis hotline has seen this huge spike in the calls of people seeking help recently. And in March, the helpline saw a 338% increase in call volume compared with February, 338%. And then compared to last year for the month of March, same time period last year compared to this year, they had an 891% increase in calls, 891% increase in calls. Anxiety, anger, we know that physical abuse has gone up by somewhere in the area of 30%. Um, boundaries are a big part of this too. We have not been able to set proper boundaries any longer between work life and, and uh, um, home life. Uh, for those of us that have been pastors on staff, this has been an issue for most of our life. It's, it's very much difficult to contain what we do within a, a nine to five four or five day week of time. But now all of us are dealing with this as, as we just turn away from the computer to make dinner or, or shut down another pad of paper that we've been scribbling on to go handle the children or some household issue that's gone amiss. And so the boundaries now between what was your work life and your personal life have become extremely blurred. This creates an extreme tension. And what we find increasingly is um, there's something about us that becomes more clear as the veneer to some degree of civilization has been shredded and tossed aside. As one writer I referenced last week, George Monbiot, published in The Guardian, we've been living in a bubble, a bubble of false comfort and denial. And uh, in the rich world, we've, uh, countries we've, we feel like we've transcended the material world. And he goes on to say that now the membrane has been ruptured and we find ourselves naked and outraged is the biology we appear to have banished storms through our lives. The temptation, he writes, this guy who as far as I know is not a Christian, when this pandemic has passed, will be to find another bubble. And he says we can't afford to succumb to it. From now on, we should expose our minds to the painful realities we have denied for too long. One of those painful denials one of those painful realities is accepting um, who we are as individuals and what it is that's inside of us. Jeremiah 17, 9, the prophet says, The heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart, all of ours, is deceitfully, deceitfully above all things and desperately sick. And who can understand it? Romans 3.10 says it's written, there's no one righteous, not even one of us. And Romans 3.23 goes on and says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But in 1 John 1.8, and I'm just kind of flying through some of these, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. And Jeremiah says, who can understand it? Because our heart is deceitful. In John, in the New Testament, he says, we deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves. Jesus put it this way, for from within, out of the heart of men, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, 
envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. In this time of sequestering, our addictions haven't gone away, they've gotten worse. Our tendencies for conflict or for selfishness in some situations, mostly pressed when we're at home or, or in these desperate situations, reveals more and more of who we actually are. There was a guy named um, Hunter Thompson. He was a journalist. He was a longtime contributor to Rolling Stone magazine. He was the author of a book that later became a film, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And he committed suicide in 2005 at the age of 67. He had addictions to drugs and alcohol and had very abusive behavior towards others. And it wasn't a secret. After his death, his first wife, uh, Sandy Conklin Thompson, wrote this, quote, and this was in Rolling Stone, March of 2005, under the heading, he was full spectrum. He was on the one hand, extremely loving and tender, brilliant and exciting, generous and kind. On the other end of the spectrum, he was full spectrum, she says. He was extremely cruel. I'll never forget something Hunter once said to me. In one of his tender moments, I asked him if he knew when he was about to become the monster. And he said, Sandy, it's like this. I sense it first. And before I have completely turned around, he is there. He is me. I sense it at first, but before I even get a chance to turn around, he is there. He is me. Kay Warren, and uh, a thing she wrote, The Only Hope for Monsters, Christianity Today in October of 2008, said how she visited Rwanda, and when she visited, she was looking for all those who had tortured and raped and had been so vicious in the actions of the, of the Civil War that tore that place apart. And she says, what I found left me puzzled, confused, and ultimately frightened, she says. Instead of finding leering, menacing creatures, I met men and women who looked and behaved a lot like me. They took care of their families, went to work, chatted with their neighbors, laughed, cried, prayed, and worshipped. Where were the monsters? Where were the evildoers capable of heinous acts? And slowly, with a deepening sense of dread, I understood the truth. There were no monsters in Rwanda, just people like you and me. And she says how often when she'd read about evil that people would do, she'd say, I could never do that, or I would never do that. But then she quotes a French writer uh, who observed, there is hardly a man clever enough to recognize the full extent of the evil he does, unquote. And she wrote, you might as well face the shameful truth. You and I put in the right situation will do absolutely anything. Given the right circumstances, I am capable of any sin. I've grown more afraid of the monster lurking in the corners of my soul. Lurking in the dark corners of my soul than of any monster lurking in the dark corners of my house. The prophet says that we're deceitful. It's hard for us to understand this. Jesus says we deceive ourselves. He goes on to talk about the things that come out of us. The writer in Ecclesiastes says, indeed, there's no one on earth who's righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. Isaiah the prophet in 64 says, all of us have become like one who's unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. All these things point to uh, a mankind that is so damaged. And in this, we can wonder, first of all, how did this even happen? And, and for those of us who are Christians, we look at the scripture and we realize that before there were pandemics or viruses or violent wars or bloodshed, 
that God had created a world without sin or death in it. We find in Genesis chapter 1 that God created a, a beautiful cosmos filled with, with brilliant stars and distant planets and living creatures. And the jewel of his creation was mankind, male and female. That was the jewel. God gave, gave Adam and Eve, our predecessors, our, our ancestors, dominion over everything. They had everything they could ever want, a palatial garden. They were the king and queen of everything they saw. But the problem came when they took their eyes off God and began to listen to other voices. And um, in that time, they, they broke the one thing, the one agreement that they had with God to not touch this one single thing. And when they did that, they made a choice that has echoed down to our reality today. They immediately realized that they were at fault, and when God comes looking for them in fellowship, they run and hide, and in their greatest moment of despair, they choose the scant coverings, the simple coverings of fig leaves to hide their sin. They're quickly confronted by God, and in the process, their guilt is made clear. In the midst of that, there was a hope, though, that was offered as well, too, that, that there would be something that would descend through Eve's line that through her seed, this serpent, this evil, this thing would be crushed and defeated. But in the meantime, all of creation was being subjugated. All of creation, we're told, is under a curse. This coronavirus, this, this thing that looks like a crown, that, that, that by itself a crown is a symbol of power and authority, that has taken such authority over our lives is just one aspect of the sin that controls us and takes over us and shapes so much of our reality. This fracturing of humanity's relationship with God had an impact upon the entire planet. And so as one writer put it, I think John Lennox said, this means that we now look at a world and we're faced with a kind of mixed picture presented by a ruined cathedral with all the beauty of the opening of the flower to the sun and all the ugliness of something like a coronavirus destroying the human respiratory system. And just as there is good and evil in creation and in humanity in general, so there is good and evil in each one of us. We too, he says and writes, are part of the problem. But he also goes on to write that hope is found in another corona, another crown, and that the crown of thorns that was forced on Jesus' head at the trial that we talked about last week at Easter before his execution, that, that thing of his sacrifice gives us hope that there can be some way of being able to repent, to turn away from our sin, to turn away from the evilness that seems to control so much of our lives and our actions. He concludes by saying that a Christian then is not a person who has solved the problem of suffering, but one who has come to love and trust the God who has suffered for them, who has come to love and trust the God who has suffered for them. Paul uh, puts it this way in Romans chapter 7. He talks about knowing what's right to do, but I don't do it. I even hate the things that I do, but I still end up doing them. And the good that I want to do, I, I can't seem to work out. And, and so he, he finds this total frustration of being able to align himself with what is right. And he concludes it with saying, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Evil is right there with me. 
I don't know if you ever watched some of the old classics. Some ones like Scooby-Doo. Where uh, Scooby-Doo and Shaggy and the rest of the gang would, would go out and they'd find all this evil and wrong stuff going on. And, and then every time at the end of the show, um, they would unmask who it was. And it was never who you thought it was. It was never the, the mean or rough guy. When they ripped it off, uh, it was always like the really nice janitor or the sweet teacher or the seemingly good guy in the scene. Uh, maybe you're a Sesame Street fan and, and you, you saw the monster at the end of this book that Grover walks everyone through. And each time the page is turning, he's saying, don't turn because they're just getting closer to the monster, to the monster. There's a monster on the other page and the other page. And this book is going to end with the revealing of the monster. And he's stressing at the whole thing. And then the page is turned and the monster is revealed to be Grover. And Grover's like, oh, well, that's not so bad, is it, in a way? In the Twilight Zone classic that I began this conversation with you, the title of it is The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. And after the striking of the, the meteor or whatever it is, everyone's kind of speculating what's going on when suddenly the power is cut. Nothing electric works, no cars work, nothing works. Somebody offers up the thought that they'd read a story in science fiction one time where this is how it begins when the aliens invade and that a lot of times they put someone there beforehand maybe, like a, a, a man and a wife and two kids just that would fit into the community that would then begin to prepare the way for their final invasion. And that plants a seed in people's minds. And as they continue to struggle in the darkness with the loss of their technology and the membrane of their lives being pierced, suddenly one of the cars starts up and I was going over to that person's house and saying, why is your car starting? I don't know why it's starting. It stops and starts several times. They begin to accuse him. He's always been a strange one on the street. They begin to look at him weirdly. And, and then just about that time, there's another house up the street. Their lights turn on. It goes through a series of things until eventually uh, a person is killed. Everything begins to break down. And um, the street, Maple Street, just dissolves in, in violence and, and attacks and ugliness. The camera pans back to two aliens having a conversation, saying, so is this how it always is? Yes, there are many Maple Streets, and we're going to go to them one at a time. We just turn them in the dark, take away their technology for a little while, and it always turns out this way. They look for an enemy, and when they're done, they find that enemy is themselves. This is really what the scripture is talking about, this deceptive issue. When, when the mask is taken off, we find that it's not our opponents, it's us. The monster at the end of the book is us. The monsters on Maple Street, on your street, on my street, they are us. And so when David commits his great sin and murders someone, this man who has a a heart after God. He sings his praises. Many of the psalms are written by him. He is, he is truly a great king and a great warrior and a great man. And he falls into sin in such a way that causes him not only to violate some things from, from a, a boundary viewpoint, a sexual ethos viewpoint, but to cause murder to occur. And there's something that has desensitized him in such a way that when Nathan the prophet comes to him and begins to tell him a story 
a little bit like what we've just talked about here maybe with Maple Street. He means to talk a story about, about a, a, a guy who had a thousand cattle and this next door neighbor had only a little lamb. And yet when a person comes to visit this rich guy, he, he takes the little lamb of his neighbor and kills him or kills that lamb to offer it up to the, to the visitor instead of one of his own flock. And David is incensed at this injustice, at this violation and all that goes on. He says, who is that person? And, and that Nathan, just like Scooby-Doo and the gang, just like Grover, just like Rod Sterling shows us in, in this piece from the Twilight Zone, says, you're the man. There are so many sins and failings that have gone on in our culture, in our society, and even within the church. And there's so many of us, some of you listening even right now, that we're so quick to feel justified or angry or horrified or disturbed at what takes place at that. And we point the fingers and we're either titillated by their failures or we're angered and frustrated at the failure and how that has impacted us in some way. And, and, and we don't realize that, that those individuals, whoever they are, is no different than we are. Our response at those failures should not be anger, ridicule. It should be a, a, a sense of sadness, a sense of compassion. If we have the heart of Christ, it would be a desire to see some restoration, some change, some transformation. And this is the thing that you need to realize here today, that, that, that if you take the moment through our conversation today and as you look at, at maybe what the pressure cooker of this time has brought about and, and you see what has come out in you as Kristen and uh, Bell and Dax Shepard have seen, as others of us perhaps have seen, that for every story of people rising up and being generous or grateful or kind, there are a thousand other stories happening behind closed doors of monsters that are finally coming out and making those things known and clear. But we need to realize that those monsters are in fact us. And if that was just the end of the story, if it was just the tragedy of, of the monsters of Vapel Street where, where they descend into this darkness and there is no hope for them, that in that darkness and, and with everything taken away and the membrane being torn open, that they just turn into that ugly thing and we've got these nasty creatures going from street to street to create that. If that was the end of the story, then we would be hopeless. We would be devastated. We would be, in fact, lost. But what the scripture points out so clearly is that there is a hope. That hope is found in the death and in the sacrifice and in the resurrection as we talked about last week of Jesus Christ. That in that crown of thorns there is an authority that supersedes everything else that can ultimately heal this creation in this world that we have so damaged. This sin that abounds in every aspect. This is what Jesus was talking about when he says, my kingdom is not of this world. But when he prays and says, my kingdom come that something is happening through his work to transform this world. That there's going to be a point in time where he's going to return to set it all right. But in the meantime, right now, there's something still working of his Holy Spirit. And perhaps this morning, perhaps this morning, that, that subtle stir, not of overwhelming guilt, not of crushing horribleness that I can never rise out of, but a stark awareness of your own and of our own sin that brings us to the realization that something has got to change. And it's not about the person I'm living with. It's not about my boss. It's not about the president or the governor. It's about me. That when I turn and look, the monster on Maple Street is me. 
And if we just settle in that darkness, that would be the end of it. But Isaiah the prophet says something. Isaiah 43 verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, He takes it right back to creation. He who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. And that redemption is the work of Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. The price has been paid. Nothing else needs to happen. I have called you by name. You are mine. Now, I want to say a final thing to you here. Then I want you to consider this. Uh, if you have some time on your hands, there is a really phenomenal um, program that's been put together entitled The Chosen. It's a Christian presentation trying to put and, and expand um, on the personalities and lives of the disciples in Jesus Christ. It's a brilliant production. It takes some license, but the license with, is with, for the first time within the realms of Scripture instead of just something that is sensationalistic. And the first presentation of this, um, mess it up for you a little bit if you haven't seen it. There's a person who as a child would have heard these words said, but had descended into such darkness as to become a literal monster to those that surrounded her. Nothing seemed to work. Nothing penetrated. There was a hopelessness in this woman's case. She realized the monster she had become, but there didn't seem to be anybody or anything that could get her out of this. Sometimes she would try to mumble these pa this passage of Isaiah that her father had taught her as kind of a, 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 a way of trying to find some connection, but it always faded off as she forgot the words or, or she began to realize that just uttering them had no meaning. And then at one point in time, she encounters Jesus Christ who calls her by her real name. Nobody had called her by that up till now. She'd had another name that in ancient tradition meant evil spirits. Something ugly. But he calls her by her original name. And as she meets him at that point in time, he begins to speak to her and he says the words that her father had said to her so much when she was a child that she tried to remember and couldn't and didn't seem to have any impact. But now Jesus is speaking it to her and he says, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, he who formed you, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name and you are mine. And suddenly all the demons, all the darkness that had shredded this young woman's life falls away in an instant as she encounters God in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. We are not given the privilege of encountering God in the flesh, but God by his Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, makes us aware as we point fingers at others that no, the monster is us. We are the ones that need to change. We are the problem. David says, you are the man. The gang takes off the, 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 the mask and it's the person you least expected. Grover goes through the whole book and it's just him. 
we strip it all down. It's you and it's me. And if you've come to realize that and understand that, if during this season perhaps you've seen it even more clearly, then I want to tell you that in this moment of time, wherever you are at, I really believe that God the Holy Spirit connects us way beyond physical convening. And if you were to look at this passage and believe it and say, now, says the Lord, if you come to him now, if we come to him and own our sin, if we face the fact that we are that monster and we submit that to God, that he can say at our repentance, at our humility, at our brokenness, stop looking at other people. Stop looking at the person next to you. Stop thinking of the person who damaged you when we own it, that we are the monster. And we submit that to him and accept his grace, then you can embrace what the prophet says in Isaiah and hear this now for you. If that's you, let's, let's stop right here. Father, I pray right now as individuals across this community of believers and some who are not believers, as they for the first time identify the evil within themselves. As Solzhenitsyn says that that line of evil runs through the heart of every man as they face that today. And maybe they become even more aware of it as the membrane has been, has been ruptured. That Lord, as they face that today and as they submit that to you, that Lord, hope would arise, restoration would arise, that there'd be something of a resolution within their own heart, their own heart and soul right now. And as they submit that to you, that now, we can hear these words. Now says the Lord, he who created you, insert your name here, he who formed you, put your name here. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. This virus has taken some degree of an authority over our lives, but there is one whose authority is greater, far greater than any virus. He is one who kills giants with a single stone, steps on the heads of dragons, destroys monsters with a simple glance, whether those are on Maple Street or on your street or my street. Know wherever you're at and whatever you're dealing with, whatever your circumstance, you are not beyond the gaze of your Creator, the one who formed you, the one who knows you by name and has redeemed you. Now maybe you might need to, after this time, make a point of apology to somebody. Maybe you just need to get some quiet moment if you can find a corner of the house and follow this up in prayer and in pursuit of God. Either way, Lord, we come before you as your people. And I thank you, Lord, that we still have that sense of unity by your spirit, even though we're not convening. And Lord, I lift up every household right now, every street and every house upon those streets, Lord God. We pray, Lord, that you would have your authority extended, that your kingdom would be extended to these households, that your peace would descend that you'd restore, even as people are practical about taking time out, stepping away and creating boundaries, Lord, that you would still mediate all these things. We commit these into your hands 
And we thank you, Lord, as you continue to minister in this season. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thanks for spending the time with us. We have something next week, um, actually over the next two weeks, that to me are kind of special a bit. And I hope you're able to join us for it. Meanwhile, God's grace go with you. And um, keep an eye on the monsters, all right? <laughs>